The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you once again to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. So this week, we're going to take up one or two monsters on the uh, right-wing side of the political spectrum. We'll start with Moms for Liberty, which by the sounds of it is great. I mean, almost everyone loves their mother. And everyone claims to love liberty. And this is like a relatively new group that has really shot up in prominence. There are a lot of prominent Republicans who are running for president, like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are giving it a lot of love. And it's also getting some, perhaps not surprising, but really notable, soft focus media coverage. And that's something I wanted to take up. And joining me here once again is Chris Lehman, who's a, a fellow columnist at The Nation. And he wrote an excellent column, which I'll link to. But I want to start with, with, with the sort of media coverage of this. Like if you're reading the New York Times and some other publications, what would your impression of Moms for Liberty be? Well, Jeet, thanks again for having me on. And yeah, the, the general run of coverage was pretty much what you outlined in your introduction. Here's a new group on the right. It's a grassroots effort of moms who came together kind of upset about COVID lockdowns and associated policies in local school boards. And now they are, you know, angling to be, as you indicated, something of a kingmaker in the upcoming GOP primary season. The group just had its second annual national conference up in Philadelphia called the, the Joyful Warriors Summit which arguably is a tell right there that you're kind of in Margaret Atwood territory, I would, I would argue, with a, a title like that. And institutionally and historically speaking, Moms for Liberty is not a new phenomenon at all. You know, you're talking about a pretty long and established thread of right-wing reaction led by prominent women, going back to the Eagle Forum and Phillips. Phyllis Shafley's agitation against the Equal Rights Amendments, going further back still to groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy and the White Citizens Council, where the idea in that case of white womanhood and motherhood in, in peril from integration was a very powerful, emotional organizing node on the right. And institutionally speaking, Moms for Liberty has very close ties to a longstanding 40-year-old group called the Leadership Institute on the right, which is basically devoted to mainstreaming evangelical and culture war issues in, in our political discourse. And what's exasperating about, say, the coverage in the New York Times, is there's literally no mention of the Liberty Institute in John Wiseman's dispatch about the group. The Liberty Institute, by the way, sponsored the, the uh, the Joyful Warriors Summit. So it's not like this clandestine thing that you have to dig deep. They also, the, the Moms for Liberty gave a, a sword of liberty to the head of the Leadership Institute in recognition of his efforts, you know, again, across 40 years of fomenting this kind of culture war militants on the right. So it's not a big reporting. <laughs> yeah, It's also, you know, the Bridget Ziegler, who's one of the co-founders of Moms for Liberty, is a vice president in school administration work on the Leadership Institute. There's also the Council for National Policy, which is an even older evangelical right-wing group that a number of the founders of Moms for Liberty are involved in. 
no mention of that in the New York Times either. There's a glancing mention of the Leadership Institute and the AP piece, but it's just like, oh, you know, they have some ties. There's no explanation of the history here. There's no explanation. And what's additionally exasperating is, you know, for those of us of a certain age, we saw this movie when the Tea Party debuted on the national stage. Here, again, you had no end of credulous news reports about this, you know, alleged grassroots movement on the right that was, um, you know, it, it put out in its PR messaging that it was, you know, tamping down on racist excesses of, of certain elements in the movement. This was all just boilerplate PR stuff that the mainstream press swallowed whole, reported uncritically. They even went to the extreme. This is when I just thought I was losing my mind when you had seen these mainstream press reports comparing the Tea Party to Occupy Wall Street because they're both against bailout. You know, it's just unbelievably lazy and and really a disservice to, you know, not even talking about our political team. It's just a disservice to readers to not pre present, you know, these organizations in their full historical context. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that history is very important. And I'll point listeners to like an earlier conversation I had with the historian Rick Perlstein, when the whole issue of critical race theory was being agitated. And I did an interview, which I'll link to with Rick, where he talked about something that he discusses in his book, The Invisible Bridge, which is about the rise of Reaganism in the sort of 70s. And there's a very interesting moment, which I think really illustrates how these things operate. Although it's in some ways even, is actually a little bit more genuinely grassroots than what we're seeing now. But Rick talked about this moment in the early 70s when a bunch of right-wing Protestants from the evangelical tradition were in West Virginia were very agitated yeah. about yeah. sex education. Yeah. And yeah. then they went so far as to like dynamite like uh, a school. Now, that was a genuine grassroots thing. But what's interesting about the story that Rick tells is that the drones in Washington at the Heritage Foundation and other like-minded institutions saw these news reports and they thought, hey, there's something we can work with here. Yep. And there's, they immediately right. started to set up these kind of like front organizations to recruit parents who are mad about sex education. And one of the people, I, I believe it was Paul Weirich, who's uh, a major figure in this sort of thing, said, you know, we're engaged in the sort of business of harvesting outrage and, right. and, and, har and harvesting and organizing outrage for a political purpose. And they have a machine in place which is creating these front organizations, creating direct mail, advertising, collecting names, and then channeling all these people into the Republican Party. And so, you know, someone like Rick Feldstein has described how this, these things work in great detail. And what's interesting is, you know, it's always a small group of people who recur. Like, as you said, you know, this organization yeah, I know. has been around for 40 years. You know, like, like, like uh, this stuff is documented. There's, there's, a, there's actually good history books and good political science books that show how this is done. And it seems like a lot of mainstream journalism is not paying attention at all to this. Or does it yeah, no, that's their that... duty to inform readers about this, you know, incredibly well-documented backstory? Yeah. Now, there was another report, actually, NBC, to its credit, got a couple of reporters to sit in on a breakout group at the Moms for Liberty conference that was actually run by Christian Ziegler, speaking of these interlocking directorates, who is literally the head of the Florida Republican Party. 
<laughs> and he's married to Bridget Z. Lear, who co-founded Moms for Liberty. Again, it's just right out there in the open. And he, you know, told the audience at, the, at this breakout session that what you always have to do, first of all, is starve out. Don't give too much information to the media because the more information you give, the less control you have. That's a pretty standard method of, you know, again, any activist group. And he, and he made the point that most reporters are incredibly lazy. They don't even understand how school board and local government operates. And he's right. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and an additional proof of that very claim is that the self-same Christian Ziegler was quoted in the New York Times dispatch on the Monster Liberty Conference, giving this very patty cake nursery school account of like, oh, we started because we were all you know, concerned about the welfare of our children over COVID, we had to teach ourselves to be teacher's assistants. Again, it sounds, what could be objectionable? What could be more benign? Of course, parents are concerned for the welfare of their children, but this is the head of the Florida Republican Party, you know, who is like all of these characters is just, you know, professionally leveraged into this vast nexus of outrage harvesting that, that you've described. And they are so firmly aligned with the power structure of the Republican Party. That's why you had the whole parade of uh, not just DeSantis and Trump, but Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy and all, basically all of the GOP field, Mike Pence, you know, all gave a pandering speech before Moms for Liberty because, you know, that's where the power is. That's not a great, you know, the Tea Party wasn't doing that two years after it was found. I will say, hey, like... You know, it yeah, took no, a long for that's right, to, that's right. Yeah, it's not a the Republican Party, but yeah, boom, they're all there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is seems like an incredibly top-down organization. Yeah. And there's that passage you quoted from the New York Times article that I thought that might be worth revisiting just a little bit because I think it, it really shows how this coverage is organized. And I'll just read a little bit of it from here. The so it's a, the quote the Southern Poverty Law Center a left-leaning human rights organization deemed Moms for Liberty an anti-government extremist group this year, period. But five Republican presidential candidates, including former President Donald J. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, will be addressing its Joyful Warriors National Summit. Now, just as a sort of fan of punctuation and argumentative structure, I, I want to like really celebrate the use of the but in, yes, I in, that, in, in that little paragraph, because what it's saying is like, well, on the one hand, you have the Southern Poverty Law Center saying it's an extremist group, but Donald J. Trump is talking about it. And so the implication is like Donald J. Trump is someone not an extremist, <laughs> is not an extremist and would not be addressing an extremist right. anti-government group. Despite the fact that he incited like an attack on the Capitol building, right? <laughs> like, yes, like, yes. And recently, you know, put out the address of Barack Obama so one of his followers could, you know, drag a bunch of weaponry outside of his house. So, yeah. It yeah, is, yeah. It's, 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 again, it's, it's crazy. Like, the implication of that that's within that single word, but. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 I got to tip my hat. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, just a master class in sort of whitewashing. Uh, I, so I think we've done a uh, fair coverage of what's wrong with a lot of the mainstream media coverage. Not all of it. There has been some good reporting. 
But mm. a lot of the coverage has been whitewashing. But I, I just want to drill down a little bit more on, you know, what Moms for Liberty is and why, you know, like not just the Southern Poverty Law Center, but many other people see it as an extremist group. So you want to just like yeah, give listeners a little bit of a taste of, you know, what this group is all about? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, again, contrary to this idea that oh, we just taught ourselves to be school aides, what Moms for Liberty has been doing over the past few years has been to not just vocally disrupt school board meetings. Several of them have been arrested for bringing firearms to school board meetings. One of the co-founders was basically threatened with expulsion from her son's elementary school campus for using disrespectful, insightful rhetoric there. They commonly will target critics, including people who have actually done, you know, serious critical reporting in the press saying things like, we're coming after you, calling people pedophiles or groomers. So it is it is very much, you know, if you were a school aide and you in, engaged in any of this activity, you would be fired <laughs> at a minimum and possibly, you know, criminally charged as, as several of the members of the group have been. So again, this dominant narrative that Christian Ziegler and company have been peddling to the press is, you know, a very misleading, superficial, and again, what's frustrating is you don't need to, it doesn't take a great deal of reporting to document the group's history in this fashion. They are a very, and they, you know, they target both, you know, the teaching of the truth about our racial history in the schools, LGBTQT plus tolerance in the schools. They have gone after individual students with those affiliations. It's, you know, it is not a group devoted to inclusion, to the democratic goals of educating people to be informed citizens to participate in, in the country's po politics. It is, in fact, a hate group. So, yeah, it yeah, is. No, no, be, no, I, no, that I, is what's so upsetting about the tenor of, of, you know, pieces like the one that ran in the New York Times. It was just like, oh, the Southern Poverty Law Center says this. Another a chapter recently got into controversy for quoting Adolf Hitler in its newsletter. What are we to make? You know, as you say, like, and yet presidential candidates are there. So it somehow must all even out. Like, it's. Yeah, it yeah is I know. I mean, I mean, the underlying premise is the both sides premise of sort of, you know, right. the flaw objectivity of the New York Times where it's like, you know, yeah, and you know, they'll just parties, they're both legitimate. We have to give both their points of view, you know, no matter what the facts are. And I, I should point out, like, um, outside this is very much a part of sort of high political coverage at the sort of, you know, presidential level. At a more local level, you know, you actually uh, or people who are like specialists in education reporting, you actually do have like very good reporting about the sort of you know education war and the turmoil that Mom for Liberty is causing and the kind of you know, really harassing tactics that they use. I mean, there, there, there is good coverage. It's, but what's interesting is that coverage, even if it runs in the New York Times, does not connect with the political coverage of the group. Like, it, it seems like there's a bubble of, like, high politics where you're yeah, exactly. allowed to care about the facts that, that are otherwise out there, which is really amazing. Yeah, and it also rests on, you know, what, to my mind, are just egregious euphemisms. Like, you know, they'll describe Moms for Liberty as a group with a penchant for controversy. Like, 
you know, and what does that mean? Like, you know, it's, it's not just that they're saying things that other people are disagreeing with. They are trying to bully people out of legitimate roles in the education system. That's not controversy. It's, it's something uglier. And I, you know, the same with the, but, you know, I, I care a lot about language and, and I think people should, and, you know, anytime I see, you know, New York times, wall street journal, Washington post use the word controversy, my spidey sense tingles. <laughs> like yeah. there's a lot being covered over in the vast majority of those cases, I would argue. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a good kind of linguistic note. And I, I would encourage the listeners to like, I keep that in mind when you're reading the newspaper. That, that's a good way to kind of sense what's going on. I, I want to like maybe just one more point about this Moms for Liberty business, which is that if one we're talking about grassroots mobilization, what's interesting is that there is that happening, but it's on the other side. And Greg Sargent of the Washington Post yeah. has done some really good reporting of how in Florida and elsewhere, a lot of parents, you know, who don't want their kids to be denied a truthful history of slavery or who don't want like, you know, LGBTQ students to live in like the closet or uh, their teachers to live in the closet are like, you know, like actively mobilizing. And there's two points to make about that. One is that unlike on the Republican side, this seems disassociated from the actual party. <laughs> like, you know, the Democratic Party on a national level seems to want to say like, Oh, we're not talking about those culture wars issues. We're talking yeah, about right. like the politics. But like, you know, like despite that, you actually have parents mobilizing a kind of grassroots resistance to this. <clears throat> and the, the, the other point I would make is that that grassroots resistance, because the Democrat Democratic Party hasn't embraced it on an institutional level, becomes invisible in the political coverage. That yeah, the New York Times does when it when it talks about these things in terms of high politics, right? So you just get yeah. you know moms for liberty are agitated about trans kids and COVID, and you don't actually see what's massively on the other side. And yeah. I, I would make just one more point about that, which is that as far as we can tell, politically these issues are not winners for the Republican Party. Well, I was just gonna yeah make yeah, that yeah, point. Do you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah. I edited a piece by John Berkshire recently for the print issue of the nation about this very thing that after 2021, the Republican Party sort of went all in after Glenn Youngkin, you know, won the Virginia governorship running on school issues and anti-CRT nonsense. And, and they failed miserably in the 2022 midterm cycle. The GOP opponent of Gretchen Whitmer for governor in Michigan lost by more than 10 points running almost exclusively on that issue. Scores of right-wing school board candidates lost because there is this active pushback among, you know, concerned parents who don't want their education, their children's education to be distorted in, in this right-wing fashion. So, yeah, there's a real disservice, again, on the part of the mainstream press because, you know, Moms for Liberty has all the professional, you know, outreach tools that any non-grassroots advocacy group does and can, you know, sell a PR line to the press. And the actual grassroots energy is on the other side, as you noted. And so you have this very misleading narrative that's driven by the Moms for Liberty message as though no one else is engaged in the struggle to make American education truly 
inclusive representative and, you know, promoting a multiracial democracy. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's right. And to the political point, I'll just add something very recent, which is in Florida, you know, where Ron DeSantis is supposed yeah. to be in charge, which is the recent mayoral race in Jacksonville, where again, yeah. the Republican candidate really went hard in on the anti-trans stuff. And this is a, a, a rare city which had yeah. a you know, Republican mayor, and, uh, but lost in, a, in a, an upset. And so I, I honestly think part of the distorting effect that we're getting from this media coverage is to present this momentary liberty as a juggernaut when like, you know, there's a lot of available evidence to the contrary. No, it is. It is really true. Yeah. So I just want to conclude here by mentioning another item in the news. Since we are the time of monsters, there's been few greater, more unsavory monsters in American political life than Elliot Abrams, you know, notorious son-in-law of the Norman Potterts and the late Midge Nectar, the greatest practitioners of nepotism in American history, which is saying something. It's <laughs> <laughs> really You know, was involved with the Reagan administration in the 1980s as the really the chief whitewasher of some of the most horrific crimes yeah. that the United States government has ever been involved with. The mass killings in El Salvador and Guatemala. And then later was also a key player in the Iran Contra. Iran, uh, went to jail. Yeah, yeah, I believe he was. He was or, yeah, I guess yeah, he was, he was convicted as a of misdemeanor, disbarred, and received a presidential pardon right. from Bush Sr., which itself is very morally dubious because if you're part of a yep. cover up, then you like get pardoned by someone you helped cover up. That was a precursor of a lot of stuff that, you know, Donald Trump did. And yep. it's generally a very bad actor. And even in their, the Bush Jr.'s administration, Bush Jr. could not nominate him to any position that required Senate confirmation, right. even when he had, you know, like after 9-11. And, you know, yeah, I know, right. The Congress was doing whatever he said. Like, like this guy employs it. So I, and then later he went out to work for Donald Trump and, uh, you know, was involved with these very disastrous efforts to foment a coup in Venezuela and to sort of sabotage the Iranian peace agreement, which he was successful at. But I mean, that's going to, I think that should be seen as one of the, you know, worst policies yeah, yeah, uh, since, yeah. since the Bush era. Uh, this guy, you know, like obviously a very bad character. And now he's being nominated for a post by Joe Biden. <laughs> and, and. Yes, you wrote a great column about this, revisiting all the, the many unforgivable crimes of Elliot Abrams. And, you know, of course, Biden for a long time was a fixture on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He thinks of himself as a very serious person in the Washington diplomatic establishment. So, I mean, and I, I would be very curious to find out which, you know, who, who, who in the Biden White House first floated the name of Elliot Abrams to go forward because it's I, among everything else it's just politically stupid like yeah. it's morally reprehensible but why do this at this moment it makes zero sense you know to me on a political calculus but I think it does you know as you observed like what we call the blob in Washington is so immune to any sort of external criticism or popular pressure that they just, you know, they are like an aristocratic caste. They speak the same language. They all, you know, went to the same schools and go to the same conferences and G7 summits and what have you. So I also think there's this element of like, well, if we 
draw a bright line around Elliot Abrams and decide he's unpopular, what happens to everyone who championed the Iraq invasion? You know, <laughs> there's a slippery slope from their point of view. So, you know, it's it's it still shocked me. I, I consider myself quite cynical, but yeah, it is. And I want to put up one aspect of why it's shocking, which is, okay, Joe Biden considers himself an institutionalist and, you know, wants to restore bipartisan comedy. But this is a clear case where, you know, that bipartisan comedy and institutionalism are at odds. Because, you know, if when Joe Biden was in the Senate, Elliot Abrams lied to Congress and was yeah. found a felon. When Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, Elliot Abrams, was like, you know, trying to undermine Obama's nominee for defense secretary, Chuck Hagel, by making incredibly baseless accusations of anti-Semitism. So, like, to suddenly take this figure, you know, who is, like, in very real material ways, like, yeah. you know, treated you with disrespect at the given position, like, I just think, like, to me, that seems wrong. But I, th I think you are right that the sort of the foreign policy blob, this kind of amorphous establishment, they really do like him. And we saw examples of this on a previous occasion where Abrams' name came up and he was notably defended by people at the Center for American Progress and yeah, elsewhere yeah, just because he's a part of the club, right? And, right. you know, as we learned from West Side Story, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from, <laughs> yeah. you know, your first breath, your last dying day. Last dying day, exactly. Yeah, so he's a, a, a billionaire is a jet and if perhaps if one, one wants the king of the jets, it's Henry Kissinger. Whose crimes are even larger <laughs> than Elliot Abrams, but who recently got celebrated at a hundredth anniversary party that was really intended by the creme de la creme of American yeah. policymaking, including the Secretary of State, current Secretary of State, and which was a bipartisan event. So yeah, I just I, I think for those of us on the outside, I think it's just these moments are worth noting. Like just just like you know, there's a club yeah. there. We're not members, but we should keep track of who who the members are. And include some very started right, and the the kind of allowances that that are made, which are, you know, as you say, morally extravagant, and I think politically, you know, stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, you're you're giving a platform to someone who is just own, you know, it's not like we we don't know who Elliot Abrams is. He has like a forty year history of this kind of conduct. So. Yeah, it is an abysmal decision, and yeah, it's it's dumbfounding even for for someone like me who's lived in Washington a long time. <laughs> okay, on that note of uh, dumbfoundment, uh, <laughs> I, I think many listeners will also share. I, I want to thank Chris for once again being on the podcast and for this lively discussion. My pleasure, Gene. <laughs>